Hi, this is Andy Crawshaw from the Game Plan Podcast, where we'll be discussing functional fitness, health, well-being, and becoming your best version. If you're looking to perform at your best in the gym, on the competition floor, or in just everyday life, listen in with Carter Douglas, the creator of the Game Plan, and myself. Hey guys, this is Carter Douglas. We'll be discussing topics and strategies that you can put to practice right away to build long-term habits for life. All right, welcome to episode seven, guys. I'm Andy, and I'm with Carter here. Welcome, and yeah, let's begin. G'day, guys. So this week, we're going to be talking a little bit about some of the things that have uh, changed in the isolation world. We've got some new announcements over here in WA. Yeah, yeah, I think uh, they were announced on Saturday. What's the date of Saturday? I was like the 24th, wasn't it? Yeah, so uh, I think, I don't know, I'm horrible with dates. So when you're listening to this, it'll probably be a week ahead of time. Yeah. So it was, what, a, it was a Sunday night that it got announced that the following day, the changes can, uh, have now happened. So. so in WA, what are those changes? Uh, by my knowledge, I haven't looked into it specifically, but now they're allowing group gatherings of up to 10 people. Sorry, nine people on top of yourself, obviously. And in this context, uh, in the fitness realm, that means you can have group PTs of 10 people, all, sh- uh, but they can't share equipment. Is that right? Yeah. The social distancing still applies. You can have the, that many people in an area, but you need to still um, abide by the social distancing rules and still have that one and a half meters apart. You know, you're not allowed to share equipment. Everyone has to have their own individual stuff. So basically, this is just the first step in us reverting back into normal day life. Do you, is this happening to other states as well, or is it just WA? I'm pretty sure it's just WA because we've had a few days there where there was zero new reported cases, and you know, the cases are gradually decreasing. So the uh, ban for regional uh, transportation between regions, sorry, that's still on, isn't it? Yeah, by my knowledge over here. Well, I guess uh, hopefully by the time you're listening to this, that probably has been updated and hopefully we can go between uh, towns now. But I guess in the context now and what we're talking about, it means we can start thinking about getting back into the swing of things, really. Yeah, I mean, I've already seen a bunch of gyms and a bunch of uh, individual PTs already having like their little mini group sessions, which I think is great because for a lot of gyms, it means they can actually start doing stuff again. They can actually start applying what they what they do. They can actually start doing exactly what they want to do again, which is providing fitness. Exactly. I think a lot of people coming back into it, it's going to be a much more of a, I guess, a relief that you can start practicing you know, what they actually are very passionate about, right? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, on that topic, actually, like, I guess coming back into it, you think based off what we've experienced over the last six weeks or how long, however long it's been so far, will there be much change in the way gyms or even coaches operate now? Oh, I think that's an interesting one because I feel like this time has really thrown a spanner in the works for a lot of gyms and a lot of coaches solely, meaning they're going to have to really rethink why they do what they do because this whole thing has or potentially could have put a few gyms out of business, a few coaches out of work and coaching and gym owning in general is generally done, well, has generally started out of a lot of passion. You know, coaches generally get into coaching, not so much with the desire to make millions, but more so the desire to actually help people. And that is something that is needed to be a good coach as well. So being thrown a spanner like this is probably going to be good for a lot of people. It's going to make them really think. 
yeah, it's going to separate a lot of uh, the people that want to actually help and you know keep striving for that purpose versus those that just were doing it for the money. But uh, let's talk about firstly the coach side of things because I think that's uh, well, that's really people are hit really hard right now, and you're one of them. You have uh, your own personal business, uh, coaching people individually as well as um, coaching in a gym. So what's your perspective on the coaching side of things right now moving into or back from uh, this whole environment where we're trapped into now, all right, let's apply some of these tactics that we've learned or uh, moving forward? Well, I hope this whole time has really opened a lot of coaches' eyes and we'll talk more on the coaching side because really neither of us actually own a gym. So no, neither no. of us own or run a gym. So it's a bit hard for us to talk on that one. But from the coaching perspective, I hope this has opened up a lot of people's eyes and really made them think of almost like a contingency plan, as in if they love coaching a lot, they're going to come up with methods that even within a time where they can't physically be there with a person, they can still help people. And really that's, I mean, I didn't set this up purely due to um, COVID, but for years I've been working on a remote coaching base and actually working with a lot of clients remotely. So I don't need to be there in person with them. And that helps me a lot in this case. I think like, yes, the, uh, businesses, uh, even outside of fitness, that decentralize their business at the get-go before all of this are the ones that are surviving quite well. Just from experience, I've seen a lot of uh, businesses outside of this realm that are just not really changing much at all. They're just having a little bit more time on Zoom or on these, on these online chat, uh, chat rooms. And that's about the only change they really have to make. But for a coach now that has to transition into this, what are the biggest differences from being a coach that does a lot of one-on-ones to becoming a coach more like you who has decentralized their business? What are the changes that they have to make? Yeah, so oh, I'm going to go back a little bit just because I thought of a funny story here. Um, so I was having a chat with one of my clients earlier, well, sorry, yesterday, and they said that, their business and also their the accountant that they regularly go to, they're completely going to stop their um, the building that they work out of. They've got businesses in these high-end buildings, these real expensive buildings, which they're just going to completely drop after this because they don't need to be there. They've really realized their work can be done majority from home or even in a small little office. Oh. So I think this has actually opened not just coaches and gym owners' eyes, but probably a lot of other businesses as well and really made them realize okay, the work we're doing does not need this really expensive office, this really expensive business, but we can actually do it on a more minimalist level. So they've kind of removed the, uh, the overheads, not because they just uh, didn't, or couldn't afford the office, but because that was just a, uh, an element to their business that just wasn't necessary. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. And this has sort of opened their eyes and made them realize that. Um, now going back to coaching, how do they move from in-person to online? So with that one, obviously a lot of coaches get into coaching because they love to help people. And the easiest way to do so is in person. It is much easier to actually help someone physically if you were there. I mean, take into account the traditional personal trainer. They are there watching the person train. They are form checking them. They are giving them the program to do. They are motivating them, talking to them, everything like that. So Honestly, that is a very that is the most simple level of this and sort of where it started. That then turned into group coaching where that person then can now coach many people at the same time, which means the coaching is not as individualized and it is more general, but that person can now help more people in a shorter period of time. Yeah. Just from your experience, 
Do you think that's a bit of a cop-out? Do you th think that it kind of removes the passion out of it if you're doing it remotely? As in coaching remotely, you mean? Yeah. No, not quite at all. And But a lot of that will come down to the coach's why and what, why they do what they're doing. So for mine, I want to help as many people as I can become better versions of themselves. I know for me, I've only got so many hours in the day. There's only so many people that I can help on a one-on-one -on -one basis. If I take group classes over personal training, I'm helping more people, but I'm helping them less. Individual or personalized stuff is always going to help people more than a group session will. But if I can then bring that into an online base, I can then work virtually when I want and where I want. So just freeing up my time, freeing up my availability to be able to help more people. Plus, I can my reach now is much higher than specifically where, where I am. Right. So because your goal was more volume-based, you want to help more people, that was a natural progression into your, uh, from your business to go from being very much one-on-one -on -one based into let's try to recruit as many people that we can to help them because we can. Yeah, pretty much. Now, in saying that, it's not get as many people as possible because even then, even in an online base, there's only so many people that I can actually help. So making sure that is managed so I'm not overloading myself or not, uh, not providing a lesser product per se or lesser help or lesser assistance purely because there's more people. Yeah, okay, then that makes sense. That's good. Uh, what about in terms of a split? in terms of people that you coach in person and online. So for instance, someone that might be making this transition, is there a, like a, a nice comfortable spot to be in, in terms of how many people you individually coach one-on-one, -on -one, uh, in person as well as online, and people that you would give them more of a general program to follow? Is there an even split so you don't become overwhelmed with a ton of work and you can still make the income you want to make? Yeah. So. With that, a lot of it uh, differs person by person and where they want their priorities to go. For example, a lot of people, even if they do have uh, a good online base, they may still want to spend a majority of their time actually in person. So if the majority of their time is in person, then they're going to need to minimize what they're doing online. So online, if they still want to help a lot of people, they may not be able to help them on a real personal level if they're also doing a lot of stuff in person. Okay. Okay, yeah. So they may need to provide a little bit more generic work online to be able to help more people as well as do their in-person work. But that, like I said, that obviously differs coach by coach, you know, goal by goal, everything like that. Some people want to only help online. Okay. Some people want to be able to help more people. Some people want to be able to actually have some form of social aspect to, to coaching and actually coach some classes because classes are fun to coach mm -hmm. and then coach some individuals because really still – the, I personally find the way I can help an individual the most is by being there with them in a one-on-one -on -one base. And that I've never been able to help anyone more on an, in an online setting than I could in that sort of state. But obviously, I can't just magically teleport everywhere to be able to help every single person. Right. But so the ratio is really just based on you know, what you want out of your business and what you want out for yourself, really. Yeah. 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 I mean, I wish we could teleport everywhere, but you know, or even bring people in. That's what a class setting really is, isn't it? Yeah. You bring everyone into one place so you can have that, that feeling of being able to serve a large group of people. Yeah. So that's pretty cool. But what about the challenge between going from uh, more individual to online? I think there are a lot of people that have that 
don't have that natural inclination. I'm sure you didn't have it naturally as well to just transition. And it was a lot of, uh, there were a lot of speed bumps to, to get to the point you are now. What was the biggest thing you had to change for yourself to get there? Yeah. So I think this whole COVID thing would have definitely uh, forced a lot of coaches to actually d dabble in this anyway. You'll see a lot of coaches these days are doing Zoom PTs. So they're doing personal training sessions through Zoom or Skype or, mm. you know, um, Facebook messenger calling or something like that. That's one way to initially transition. You know, now if the person is remote, you can still give them a call, watch them train, help them while they're actually moving. Now, how I did it was I didn't just go straight into that. How I sort of got into this was I had people who I used to coach who moved away from my location. So they moved away. They moved into uh, intercity. Yeah, I don't think it was interstate, but intercity. So they moved into another city. They still wanted my coaching and were constantly in communication. So that just uh, initially just came into a an individual design from an online perspective of a, here's what I believe you need to progress. This is the program that I'm going to give you. And then they just consistently gave back feedback as in, you know, I got X weight for this workout. And then I, or even sent through videos of this is how I was lifting today. I could then review that. Um, so it just became more of a consistent back and forth between certain clients with me providing them a program and then provide them providing me with results or videos that I would then analyze and go back and forth. Okay. So it's like a, a natural evolution of your business just so you could serve those that kept wanting your service. Initially, it was almost like an accidental falling into it. I didn't start it as a, oh, sweet, I'm doing this on purpose. It was a, oh, there is actually a desire here for people. Right. And just on that, you mentioned that the communication was very high with you and your clients during that point in time. Yeah. Uh, even now, is it the same? Do a lot of your clients come in, they'll, they'll tell you um, their score or the reps or the weight that they did on a certain piece, and would you still have that uh, conversation with them to adjust? Communication in coaching in general, whether that's in person or online, is key. You really do need to have a high level of communication. Mm. As a coach, you need to know what to ask to get the right answers from but you also need to know how to communicate with the individual so obviously not all individual individuals are the same and not all of them respond to the same level of conversation so you need to know how to actually talk to them as well as the client also needs to actually want to talk back and want to actually communicate back with you um, because that way you can actually then get to know and understand the individual on a more personal level you can actually get to know and understand them well and the more you understand them the better you can actually serve them. Right. I think a lot of that's, do you think it's a, lot of, a lot of that is lost in a person-to-person -person relationship? Because I guess if you're, I'm approaching you and I want individual coaching, uh, you may not necessarily think that it might be necessary to build that stronger relationship. Whereas online, because you are so separate in terms of locality, that that relationship has to be solid. So do you think there's a bit of a, a divide there and it's forced people to start really diving into that, into trying to build a relationship based on more values and making it more individual? I wish there wasn't that divide there, but there definitely is. I believe even in person, coaches should be able to communicate well with their clients, but being in person, I feel like they don't, meaning the client is paying them for their time, you know, e.g. 30 minutes, an hour, etc. So the, it's regular for me to see that the coach only gives them their time, only gives them their um 
their communication for that time that they're paying, that the client's paying. Right. It's just a common one that I do see. But it's a good evolution now, I guess, from realizing that the relationship is what holds this uh, coach and client um, dynamic together in, a, in basically the, the biggest part in, in a major way. So, yeah. yeah. But let's move away from coaching and let's talk about more of the larger facilities, the, the boutique gyms and the commercial gyms, because they are getting hit pretty hard on this just because they do have to shut down entirely. And uh, I, I'm a member of Anytime Fitness and I've seen them trying to uh, evolve on this um, pandemic and start offering online programs. I love home um, programs just through their membership. But what about move as, as this thing dies off, especially in WA, it's an interesting um, case study now in WA, so we'll keep an eye on this. But do you believe that a lot of the people that have set up their own home gyms as a response to being in isolation, that they will even consider trans just keeping that home gym and working out in there versus renewing their their membership at their commercial gym or at uh, their boutique one? I reckon that one is going to be a complete case by case and dependent on on the gym. Now, if the gym can provide you with a service that you cannot achieve at home, then people are going to go back. Meaning if a gym is just providing you a workout, you can get that at home. If the gym is providing you good coaches, a good community, and I don't just mean like, you know, there's a couple of people who you like there or, you know, the coach is nice to you. Mm. I mean, actually a good community as a whole, somewhere where you want to go and want to just hang out, somewhere where you could just spend hours of the day at, then if the gym is actually providing you with this or an experience that you can't replicate at home, then they're going to bring people back. Right. It's the culture of that gym that is what's going to retain the members out of this, really. Yeah, especially on the boutique level, the big Globo 24-7 gyms, they're on a sort of a different spectrum there because sure there is a little bit of a culture there but you know it's not as personal it's not as direct uh towards you there what do you feel about the 24 7 gyms like will you renew your membership i'm i'm on the edge of it because i frankly do get a lot of value out of the 24 7 gyms just because of its convenience and that there's a usually with a 24 7 gym you have a lot more of a variety when it comes to uh, using machines, free weights, barbells. Even nowadays, they're evolving into functional fitness, integrating things like the GHD, uh, ski erg, all these different equipments. For me, I will be continuing my, uh, my membership, but I don't believe it'll be because of culture, which I think is a more of a better long-term reason why I would stick to a gym. It's only purely before, uh, because of the, the convenience and the actual um, the service they're providing, which can be replicated by any 24-7 gym. So I can potentially right now quit the one that I'm going to, or used to be going to, and go to, go to a different one, which maybe uh, may have more equipment. So it's a bit of a, yeah, it's a bit of a hard one to answer there. But how about yourself? Because you don't necessarily go to one of these uh, Globo-esque gyms. What do you think in terms of it from your perspective? Yeah, with, when it comes down to Globo Gyms, if I was in your shoes, uh, my, mine would be exactly the same. I may not keep the membership at the gym that I necessarily was at before, unless that one could serve me in a way. But I know that if I'm actually going out of my way to go to a gym and to use their equipment, 
or sorry, if I'm going out of my way to you know spend that time to go to a gym, paying money to go to a gym, I'm more than likely going to actually use it. And I'm probably going to work a little bit harder there than what I would if I was just going out the back to train in my backyard, mm. even if I had a solid home gym set up. So I would be very, very similar to you. I would actually, you know, go out of my way to go back there to use different equipment or at least a change of scenery. So it's not like I'm working and then all of a sudden just walking outside to do a workout with my mind in a different state. I'm actually specifically going somewhere to train with the only goal of training. Yeah. I think with that perspective, that's probably the, um, that's pretty true of most people. Uh, I just like that, that partition of your life where you're just training there because that's the purpose of the location. But, uh, looking at it as a whole, I feel like the Globo gyms won't actually be affected too much coming out of this, but the ones that were able to provide as much value as possible during isolation and previ- uh, previously before it, those are the ones that would survive or profit much more than the ones that are maybe even, I wouldn't say letting their members down during this time, but not providing as much value as possible uh, and, and really you know, driving in the idea that, yes, don't forget about us. We're still around and you're welcome when you come back and we're going to help you as much as we can during this time, even though you can't come to our centers to train. So I think it's more of that perspective that would be an interesting insight into whether or not the big global gyms would succeed coming out. But I think they, on a majority spectrum, they'll be fine. But do you think that'll be a huge shift for more boutiques in terms of the ones you see that will continue? And will you think that many will drop off? I'm going to ask you the same question because I've answered it a little bit just before and I can elaborate on that. But first, I want to know your thoughts. What do you think will happen with a lot of the boutiques? Oh, man. Well, it's a tough one to answer because I, I believe it's all based on the cultural, the cultural side of things. If the gym can maintain you, uh, retain you because of the members, because of the good coaching, because of the environment that you're entered into, then I'm not necessarily even going there for the training. I'm going there just to feel good. And so I'm part because it's part of my identity mm, going yeah. to that said gym. But I like training at home as well, especially with the functional fitness side of things. Uh, being able to train with uh, a group of friends and, you know, jamming out to whatever music that you want to tra- train to. It's almost more of a, a mini culture that you create for yourself. And I think a lot of members will try to keep doing that until they realize that they want to be a bigger part of something, uh, something else. They want to be stimulated by a coach who's there pushing them specifically. I think uh, people that need that drive will resort or not resort back, but transition back into a boutique gym naturally. But I think at in the first probably a few months after gyms are reopened, there will be a slowdown. But I think it will pick back up slowly again and continue on as normal. But the differential between a gym surviving financially will be how much they how long they can last during that beginning few months of uh, as soon as they reopen. So that's my perspective on it. Yeah, I completely agree with what you're saying there. I think a huge thing here is there's pretty much going to be two types of people. As we've seen, there are a there has been a shitload of money spent on gym equipment or even people just making up their own gym equipment from, you know, squat racks through to anything yeah. that they can lift, trying to bench press their uh, table or something like that. So people can make do if they need to, but you're going to get the two ends of the spectrum here with the people. There's going to be the real socialites, the people who want to go in for the community per se, and then there's going to be the other end of the people who 
want to make the most out of every dollar they've spent on the gym equipment. So some mm. people are going to be, you know, itching to get back in the gym and it's going to be the other people who are, you know, only going back in the gym. Oh, sorry. They're going to be staying at home purely because they don't feel like they've got their value for their equipment they've got yet. But as to whether the gyms survive after this or as to how fast the community regrows back comes down to the experience. And by the experience, I mean the experience that the gym can provide. So, you know, if the gym provides a great experience from all the way through from the, the moment you step in the door all the way through to, you know, you leaving at the end of a session, then you're going to have a higher chance of staying. That can come down to, you know, coaching, the actual workouts, the community, everything along those lines. You know, even just the vibe, the music in the class plays a big part in experience, the tonality of the coaches, you know, how happy the coaches are, how happy the people are. Obviously, if it's a class full of, uh, you know, really half asleep people, sad people in like a 5 a.m. class, <laughs> they're probably, you're probably not going to have a great time. But if you're going to a group of people who look like they're, you know, had already had five coffees that morning in a 5 a.m. class, they're gonna, you're probably going to have a pretty damn good time, mm-hmm. especially if they're a good crew of people. It's going to be a party. And just on that as well, it's not necessarily necessarily just as soon as you enter and leave the gym. There's the, the other 23 hours or, you know, when you're awake online as well, having building that culture and that retention through there, I think that's a big part of it too. Yeah, yeah. It's So it's going to be interesting to see if as a coach or even as a gym, if you can provide an experience that the client's value, then they're going to be coming back and they're going to be itching to come back. Because if you think about that, a lot of coaches can provide a similar experience even on a one-on-one individual base while you're working out at home. So if someone does have a, uh, if someone does have a coach that they work with on a one-on-one individual base, and let's say you don't necessarily value the community where you train, you may just stay at home. Um, and that is a, something that could potentially happen here. Yeah, okay. I agree, I agree. I, you know, just thinking about it now, I've always had a bit of a, uh, a problematic time communicating this from a branding or design perspective because there's always that uh, divide between providing a service for your clients and then providing true long-lasting value in terms of a culture and being able to define both of those as individual uh, entities People sometimes have issues lacking, uh, linking those together or they think that their service is their culture. Now, I think that in this whole experience, it's pretty much made it obvious as to what is going to retain people and what's going to basically be a, a service to them or a, a very um, expendable system that they don't necessarily they'll stick to. And looking from that perspective when, and applying that to more of a branding or creative perspective, you now definitely see that retaining customers and creating true fans is through culture and, and creating that relationship versus just providing a, a good service. It's providing a good experience. So uh, just taking that onto that end of the uh, side of things, I think it's uh, a good way that businesses can reflect and progress moving forward, including coaches, including individual brands and all that kind of jazz. Yeah. Yeah. Completely agree there. If we look at like boutique gyms versus 24-7 gyms, one is not necessarily better than the other because it obviously completely is determined by the individual, but boutique gyms are generally more experience-based as in they need to provide a good experience to keep people in, while 24-7 gyms, they don't need as good an experience as such. They just need to provide a good service for minimal cost. Yeah, 100% agree. Uh, just some, some, uh, summarizing this whole thing uh, and uh, finishing it off, 
with this whole experience yourself, is there anything that you're going to change moving into or moving out of full isolation, even though you do have an online business and a very strong culture yourself? Is there anything you would change moving forward? Oh man, that's throwing me in the deep end here. That's, I actually, I honestly don't know whether I can, I can, uh, express that one currently. That's actually a really hard one. Maybe just capitalizing on what you already have and just fine tuning it and just being better at it. At being online and decentralized. There's been a bit of a shift, obviously, with this time of having to be a little bit more online and decentralized. And that's, I've spent a lot more time in, in that at the moment. I definitely miss actually being in a location and coaching in person, but I feel like I'm going to carry a lot of the things that I've learned through this time and probably, like you said, capitalize on those afterwards. Nothing huge I'm changing. It is more so capitalizing on what I've learned and taking that learning experience and actually applying that a little bit more. I like it. I like it a lot. I think it means that you know, you're always growing even though you know, the time to change. Change doesn't necessarily have to be uh, evolving entirely in terms of your system and process, but just refining, fine-tuning, and just being better at what you're currently doing and providing for your clients. But uh, cool response. I like it. So, yeah, moving into the next topic. What's the next topic? Just be better and try harder. No, no, that's not the <laughs> next topic. Um, so next up, I've got a couple of questions for you here. Oh, okay. Now, <laughs> we will talk about and elaborate on this, but I know you're itching to get back into a gym. I mean, you train pre- ah, pretty much daily, you know, at least a couple of rest days a week. But both you and I have a fairly ho- uh, solid gym setup that we're currently using, home gym, obviously. We're not going in anywhere. But you're itching to get back into it. I'm sure you're itching to get back into the Globo gym. You love a good mirror. That's, yeah, absolutely. I also believe mirrors should be in the CrossFit gym, but that's just me. <laughs> Maybe not every wall. Handstand push-upping on mirrors doesn't exactly work that well. It's super distracting. You know, just keep looking at yourself like, wow. <laughs> Now, would shirts come off if you had mirrors everywhere? Shirts come off anyway. Yeah, okay. Shirts are just, you don't want to have to do more washing. Exactly. That's, that's my point. You know, if you're, if you're going to do a workout and you know you're going to take your shirt off, take it off before the workout, before it gets sweaty, so you have a nice dry shirt to put back on. Exactly. I'd prefer to, even in the middle of winter, take the shirt off, leave the trackies on. Yeah, exactly. Trackies are comfier. I love the legs being nice They're and warm. They get less, less soaked in your yeah. own sweat. Yeah. You can't do that at a Globo gym. No. Even if you're good. <laughs> Even if you're good. Yeah. <laughs> if you're doing a wad, like a, an AMRAP or whatever, you still can't take your shirt off. It's, it's odd. Yeah. So <laughs> the next part. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. I liked that. That was good. The next part. You're itching to get back into the gym. Are you worried about any of your gains from throughout this time? Now, you're a little bit of a different one because you have been training, but any of your strength aspects, are you looking at them going thinking, well, I don't know about that. Very interesting. Um, hard to answer just because I know my strength has... My goals prior to isolation was just maintaining muscle and, and uh, strength just because I was in a bit of a cut, uh, a body fat cut. But I do also think that my strength has decreased considerably during this time and, and maintaining it even with the home setup has been quite challenging. Uh, what was the question again? Are you worried about any of your gains, with lack of a better word there, going back into your general training? So if the gyms were open today and you walked back in, what would be your feeling around 
where you're at now versus where you're at before. Oh, you're I, a bit of a, on the different end of the spectrum because before you were very aesthetic based. Yeah. While a lot of the people listening to this are probably very performance based, but I want to see your opinion here. Okay. Yeah. Well, I honestly think if I was to walk back into the gym now, it's still a little bit more aesthetic based. And I don't really think I'll have a huge emotional issue with whether or not I can bench press, you know, 100 for reps or 80. I just want to just feel good after the session. I want to feel like I have trained my body uh, appropriately. And that's what I would probably, I'm more excited for that than anything else. I wouldn't be concerned at all. But uh, with the notion of, in, in, from the perspective of performance, and if my goal was performance solely, I definitely would feel pretty bad. I reckon. I reckon I would. I, I would. I, and, uh, a workout that would maybe take me, you know, uh, like a, a normal five-minute workout that took me th- um, like eight minutes, and I experienced that, and I felt considerably weaker and slower. I think that would be emotionally distressed. It's just distressing for me, and shocking, and I'll probably feel like crap. Fair enough, fair enough. Reason why I asked uh, that question then, just for some context for everyone else, because now we're going to start talking about the approach of coming back into the gym and people's attitude towards that, uh, purely because I'm guessing, obviously complete assumption here, guys, I have no, absolutely no clue, but from when this releases, we're probably looking at, I don't know, maybe two to six weeks until maybe the gyms can reopen. You reckon that soon? Maybe, but that's just purely like of a... We went from, you know, a week of virtually no COVID cases to all of a sudden now we're expanding up to 10 people. So I'm guessing maybe soon there might be even some yeah. um, more things being able to re- be reintroduced. But also, you know, there's already gym classes happening down in the at the park. So that's why I think it's a good valid time to start talking about how to approach coming back. Were all gyms closed at the same time or was it just commercial gyms first and then boutique gyms? Uh, I'm pretty sure it was all gyms closed as of like that 12 a.m. Monday, whatever date that was. Um, sorry, 12 p.m. lunchtime. Um, but I'm pretty sure there was a few cases where obviously like um, gyms on mine sites, you know, which were a lot more unique and things like that, like pools were closed earlier, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. So some training facilities were closed earlier, but I'm pretty sure it was the majority of um gyms as such that were closed at the same time okay okay initially so anyway i believe very similar to what andy um said there i'm sure a lot of people who were aesthetic had aesthetic biased goals are probably just can't wait they're itching to get back in purely just to feel that sweet sweet pump oh absolutely that's all i want to say that but like i can't say that again (laughs) but yes the pump is what i'm chasing the pump is real but the people who are very performance-based, I already know from having a lot of conversations with people, they're already worried. They feel like they've lost absolutely everything, whether that's their actual muscle hypertrophy, whether that is their actual strength, their endurance, um, yeah. even just their ability to, to perform skills. I don't want to like encourage that thought process, but even just going back uh, and doing a... I got access to a pull-up bar and I just tried doing a few muscle-ups chained up and that was already a huge struggle for me. That was during a workout. And I was like, I could usually chain these okay, but now that's like, oh, I can only do singles. Crap. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we're going to talk about this one because a big thing here is obviously some people have been training, some people have been moving, some people have access to a lot of equipment, some people have access to virtually nothing. 
we're going to take this from a nothing standpoint. So from, you know, if you haven't been training, mm. if you have been training, you generally fall in the middle of what we're about to talk about. Um, and also obviously it will depend on how you're training. Now, a big thing here is you have not lost as many adaptations as you believe you have. And I'll reset that again. You have not lost as many adaptations <laughs> as you believe you have. A lot of people are stressed. They feel like if they've just learned how to snatch and they had a 50 kilo snatch, they feel like they're going to be back down to the empty bar and they need that. Mm. The biggest thing you will lose across this time, and I'm going to tell some numbers to you guys soon, is your actual neurological connection to movements, your skills, okay? And a big thing about whether you're going to actually lose those will be depending on how long you've been doing them for. Right. Okay. So, for example, with you, Andy, you've been training for how many years? How old are you now? I'm 25 now, and I was training oh, since I was a very young, um, from a very young age, like yep. 12, but I wasn't in a gym till I was about 17. Yeah, so even from 17 through to 25, he's been doing some form of lifting, really. Yeah, so my, my lifting age is quite significant, I guess, in the perspective of, of, of lifting or, or strength training. And just on that as well, in terms of adaptation, I mean, a lot of the, the bodybuilders or whatever – uh, are aware of that muscle uh, memory and then you know just jumping back into the gym and, and just you know working maybe for maybe a couple of months on just the program that you were previously on you can probably gain a significant amount of strength and size close uh, to what you were previously doing and at a much faster rate than it took to build it initially yeah yeah definitely having this break could actually be amazing for a lot of people oh, here because they're going to come back firing on all ends and adapting and you're restarting this time at a higher point than you restarted or than you started when you initially started the gym. Yeah, I think, in fact, it's probably been a very positive thing that people have had this prolonged rest period. Yeah. Just so they can reset their entire system and start, not from scratch at all, they're, they're just really uh, healed up well. Yeah. I know that there's a lot of people out there who have probably actually trained harder through this time than normal. I'm uh, pointing my fingers at you, Jackie, who keeps going <laughs> completely off the program and uh open oh, workouts randomly yeah. oh, i feel like doing this open workout oh i feel like maxing out my snatch right now no i'm only kidding jackie i don't mind it that much now <laughs> anyway so with this one people at ad ad people's adaptations so let's say i honestly i should have actually uh measured this one but let's say it's around six weeks right now okay if you've completely rested as in absolutely did nothing, did absolutely no training for four weeks, on average, we're looking, your strength will still be maintained. After the four weeks, sorry, your strength will still be maintained up to that four weeks as long as there is adequate nutrition within that and just adequate blood flow and adequate movement. If you are literally just sleeping for four weeks nonstop, you're probably going to lose a little bit but a big thing there, every week after four weeks, it does gradually decrease, generally by about 1%, give or take. Mm. Okay, so you're not losing very much. Okay, so if we're at six weeks, you may have only lost 2 to 5% of strength. Yeah, that's nothing. That's nothing at all. Now, when we're talking about muscle atrophy, meaning your muscle's getting smaller, that generally takes about three weeks. Obviously, this will also come down to your nutrition. Okay, so if you've been eating well and eating good, eating adequate amounts of protein and keeping your fats high enough to uh, regulate hormones, you're more than likely, you probably haven't actually lost anything or maybe not much at all if you have. The biggest thing is you will feel smaller 
and you may even actually show slightly smaller, your muscles have not necessarily actually gone smaller, but your glycogen stores are way smaller than they were. So you don't have as big of that pump feeling. Is that just because you just don't need that much storage at this point in time because your body's adapting to the, uh, there's less training stimulus during the week? So why would the body need that much glycogen storage if you're not training? Would that be the general response from the... Uh, Pretty much if you don't use it, you don't need it. Yeah, okay. If you're not, sorry, yeah. if you don't need it, you're not using it, which means your body is going to get rid of it. Right. But that's a very quick process or system to rebuild in your body once it starts uh, training again. Yeah. Yeah, that one won't take very long at all to actually get back, you know, so feeling that sweet, sweet pump won't take very long. Mm. Now, endurance work, this one increase, uh, sorry, decreases at a slightly faster rate than strength and muscle atrophy, but we're looking at after four weeks, anywhere between four to 25%. I know that is a big range, four to 25, but a lot of that comes down to the training age of the human. Okay, so we take Andy here, for example, eight years at a gym. I know that hasn't been eight years of endurance training, but eight years of a gym at the gym, he's probably looking at closer to that 4% range, also dependent on their nutrition, what they're actually doing within that time. But let's say Andy was sleeping for that four weeks. He's probably only losing between 4 to 8% of his actual endurance within that time, doing absolutely nothing. And that is because he's got a fairly long training age. Okay, he's been training for a fair while. He's actually been moving consistently, probably hasn't really had that long a break before in his life, really. Now, if you, let's say, had started the gym one month prior to, um, and that was the first time ever that you started the gym, you're looking at a slightly higher endurance decrease there. And that's just because your body hasn't actually gotten used to it yet. Your body isn't actually hasn't adapted or hasn't actually solidified those adaptations across years and years of training. It's more of like a you are in the process of adapting and then all of a sudden you take it all away. So more is going to decrease from there. So really, even with endurance, you potentially lost a little bit, but it ain't that much. You have not really lost that much, especially if you're a well-trained individual who's been training for a while. So stop feeling sorry for yourselves. You are not as unfit as you think you are. No. The biggest one, and this is where I believe you're falling into the category of with your muscle-ups as well, Andy, is the skills aspect. The skills aspect is what's going to actually drop off the fastest, okay? And there are multiple different areas of skills that we're talking about. Is actual physical skills that you're learning. There are mental skills as well. And there is actually, sorry, and partially within the mental skills is your ability to hurt, okay? Right. Come down into some high or coming into some high intensity training. If you haven't actually trained anything high intensity for this six weeks or so that we've been off, and then all of a sudden you jump back in and try to do some sprint efforts day one, your body will probably not remember how to go into that realm. It probably won't actually be able to be able to go into that area. So it's not going to want to. So you're saying that if I really, that, that, you know, when I used to really want to push myself during a wad and be able to. Uh, live in that pain sensation for a long period of time or in the context of this five minutes of just endurance or a real pain system based uh, experience, I may not be able to enter back into that going straight back into uh, functional fitness. Not straight away, but that comes back fast. Is it just as fast as the rest of the other points or? Faster. 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 Okay. The big thing here is with a lot of these skills is your body has done it before, so it knows how to get back to it fast. It remembers. It remembers. Like you were talking about before with muscle memory. Take into account your skills with the muscle-ups. 
with your muscle-ups, a big reason why you're on to singles in that workout is because really you only learned them, what, six months ago? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So across those six months, even if you'd done 100 reps total in your life, which is a pretty solid amount considering you only learned it six months ago, imagine if you'd done 100 reps a year and you'd trained that for eight years. There's 800 reps that you've done. Your body is a lot lower chance to have actually forgetting that movement. It's building more of that neuromuscular connection during that point in time. Yeah. You're not going to like forget to walk, yeah. for instance. Yeah. Yeah. Even four weeks off, I'm sure you can get back up and actually learn to walk again. You know, right. It's going to feel weird the first couple of steps, but you're probably going to be able to do it. But with something like the muscle-up, you've been doing it for six months. You, know, you may have done give or take 100-odd reps across those six months, maybe, depending. Hope you haven't done too many more than that because your shoulders will not like you very much. Mm-hmm. But with that, it's not going to take too long to actually bring that back. But the more you've done across your life, the faster it's going to come back. Interesting. And so I guess there is no real uh, defining time frame of which it will come back. Uh, it's based on every human and how long their training age is and how frequent they try to uh, regain the skills uh, once everything is back to normal. So I guess you can't really put a number on that, but is there a recommended way of entering back into the gym and, and applying these skills? Yes, definitely. I'll talk about that one in just a second, but I'm just going to go back a second and give you guys a bit of like an analogy to think about. Take an Olympic weightlifter. A lot of people are going to walk back in and think they're weak because their Olympic lifts, like they're clean and their snatch, are way worse or they at least feel harder than they used to. If you've only been training the Olympic lifts for, you know, one, two years, maybe three, if you're actually a little bit more experienced per se, then even then having four weeks off, you haven't really done that many repetitions of snatch, clean, jerk across this time, even if we're taking into account deadlifts and squats. But if you're an Olympic weightlifter who've been doing this 10, 15 plus years, they walk back in, they could have six months complete rest where now their strength has actually dropped drastically. But I can guarantee that their one at max lifts would be somewhat similar coming back into it purely because they've spent so much time practicing and refining their technique haven't lifted a bar for six months, but they can walk back in. They could probably snatch and it would look, still look pretty damn good. Cool. Or very similar to at least where they were before. Right. Is it actually really faster to regain the strength and skills uh, for an endurance athlete or for someone that is more of an Olympic lifter or a power-based athlete? So let's break that down a little bit more. Let's break it down into four categories I sort of mentioned. There's the strength. Uh, muscle hypertrophy slash muscle atrophy, endurance, and then the neurological stuff. Out of those four, the fastest to come back will more than likely be the neurological, depending on how much time you actually spend practicing rather than just training or competing. So, you know, getting your, uh, training your double unders again won't take too much more time if you've already had them prior to everything. Yes. If you have lost strength, endurance, or muscle size, those three will return but not as fast as your skills would, okay? Especially if you go into it with a real growth mindset and go into it thinking that you, want, that you know these things, the skills have dropped back and that you actually want to improve them again and relearn them rather than going into it with a, the attitude of, I'm not where I used to be, I am shit, mm-hmm. I need to give up right now. Go into it with the attitude of, I'm here to practice, I'm here to relearn and to get better than I used to be. Right. So even just coming back in, let's use the muscle up for an example. Uh, 
I can do one doesn't mean I've lost necessarily that much more strength. It just means I can't chain them again because of the skill thing. And I just have to regain that skill. Pretty much exactly. So yeah, bringing that back to some uh, base drills for you, even some spotted attempts, something like that, is going to help you more than just attempting to do doubles. Interesting. I guess uh, you think there'll be a lot of just like, what would you call this process? It's not rehab. It's like uh, just skill up or reskill kind of um, relearning. Just relearning programming uh, in the first couple of weeks for most of these functional fitness gyms. Yep. So actually getting back into the gym. How are you going to approach getting back into the gym? Are you just (laughs) good question? Let's say going back into your, I know you've already been training, so I know I've actually been seeing this, but let's say you're going back into the Globo gym. Is your first session going to be absolutely destroying you? Oh, no. I'm just going to, probably the first session, just hug the leg uh, leg press and just uh, get reacquainted with all the machines and just feeling them, really. Just reminding myself, all right, this is what it's like for um, being at the gym. But in terms of actually training. Stroke it a little bit, sniff it a little bit. <laughs> treat it nicely. That's right. I miss you guys. But in terms of training, uh, I won't be going super hard at all. I'll program much more lighter load and just regaining back the sensation that I was experiencing uh, prior to everything and just kind of relearning how to uh, use, integrate that into my, uh, my week and my day because I'm sure that the stimulus that I put myself through uh, in my first Globo gym workout will drastically affect how my body responds outside of the gym. I love that. I love that breakdown there. And so going into this in general, going back into training, obviously a lot of it will come down to how you currently train and are you going back into like class scenario, individual training, you know, something at a Globo gym, etc. Are you in a CrossFit, weightlifting, whatever? But as a general rule of thumb, and I hope that your coaches will be doing this if you are in a group scenario automatically, but even if you have been training through this time, a lot of new skills, or when I say new skills, they may have been skills you've done before, but you may not have done them for four to six weeks, maybe even longer. A lot of these new skills are being thrown back at you, okay? Sure, you may be stronger in other areas because you've done, you know, 2 million push-ups across those six weeks, hmm. but you haven't actually been doing any pull-ups, okay? Now, or you haven't been doing any Olympic weightlifting, or maybe you've been doing deadlifts with a light kettlebell, but you haven't gone to anything near maximal. Now, all these new skills and these new things are being thrown at you, which your body is not quite ready for. Even if you're conditioned, you should not be jumping in all guns blazing, okay? Because that will be the reason why you get injured, and you will get injured pretty damn fast while doing that, so a good way to approach this is literally the first four weeks should be going back in and just taking a cruisy. Literally every session, relearning how it feels to train. Even if you've been training this whole time, your training is now different. So treat every session as like drop the weights back, drop bring the intensity back. Try and make every session, and I know we've talked about this in previous episodes before, as being sustainable, meaning if you did that workout and I gave you that exact same workout tomorrow, uh, the exact same time tomorrow, you should be able to repeat your efforts, okay? So if you got five rounds in a workout, following day you should be able to do five rounds again, not five rounds one day and then you're so cooked the next day that you can only do three rounds. So making sure that all your sessions are in that sustainable realm and that you're moving well, moving good, and you should finish your first week feeling amazing. You should not feel ruined at all. 
right? I think that's very positive as well, especially mindset-wise when you're after a week of positive working, uh, positively working out and it'll get you back into the swing of things and at least making yourself more consistent on week two, week three, week four, as you are just gradually getting back into things and the swing of things, your body will uh, probably uh, reward you more for that. And you'll just, you know, generally feel more positive about training. If you had an issue with uh, training before in terms of your relationship with, you know, hurting or repairing yourself or recovering, then this is a good chance you said be a good chance to have a review of how you recover at this point in time? Oh, yes, definitely. If before you were just that person who needed to hurt every single time you went in the gym and needed to ruin yourself, now's a good time to learn that you don't need to. Yeah. You don't need to finish every session feeling absolutely wrecked. And as a result, you reckon you'll get stronger from that? You'll get stronger. You'll get fitter. You'll get faster. Everything will go up. Your hormones will be better. Everything will be better. A good reset, actually. I mm. uh, well, Give uh, COVID a bit of uh, some flowers, you know? <laughs> Thanks, guys. Yeah. Um, horrible thing. I, on the record, I did not support it. <laughs> now, a good way to approach this. So, obviously, people like numbers. People like seeing things. You know, they may go back in day one. They might be feeling good on that day. So, they might be giving what feels like at that time an 8 out of 10 effort when, in reality, it's probably more like a 10 out of 10 effort. And then they're ruined the next day, so on and so forth. A good way to approach this is let's look at this across seven weeks. Your first three weeks should pretty much be at a five to, sorry, at a 50 to 55% effort. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you should walk out feeling like, sweet, I gave about 50% effort on that day. If you know what your previous one rep maxes are, and let's say you're doing your previous one rep max was 100 kilo deadlift, and now you're actually deadlifting that day, you shouldn't really be lifting that much more than 50 to 55%. Okay. Is that dependent also on the programming for that gym or is that all dependent on the individual's choice of how to approach that workout? In an ideal world, I would love to see the programming of a lot of gyms program this specifically. This, maybe not this exactly, but this is my opinion, but program in a similar manner as in easing people back into it. Okay, so not just throwing people back in and week one, we're going to test your one rep max deadlift uh-huh. to see where you're at, but rather than that, rather actually warm up into it by doing some sets at around that 50%, using that deadlift as the marker there. So in a perfect world, I would love to see group classes and coaches do this stuff automatically, bring people back in and not absolutely ruin them the first week on purpose, force them to actually go a little bit cruisier because more than likely they're going to be a client for a longer period of time if they're not injured. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So easing them back in and actually gradually building them up is going to be Massive there, absolutely massive. So week one to three, looking at 50 to 55% effort. Every week after that, so week four, you want to be adding at about 10%, okay? So 65% effort, six to seven out of 10. Then 75% effort for week five, 85 for week six, and then week seven, okay, now you've almost got the, the reins unleashed. So pretty much you're looking at about that, you know, nine out of 10 effort, leaving a little bit in the tank, form shouldn't be turning bad, but you can actually start really putting in some effort there. And that's basically back where you used to be before everything. Yeah, you may not quite be back there, depending on what you were doing in the meantime, you know, sorry, while you were um, away, whether you were training or not, but, you know, your at least your effort will be very, very similar. Right. And just a quick one as well, just going back, uh, the approach you should take, because I know even for myself, if I did a workout at 50%, I might not mentally feel satisfied. But is there something I can look at instead of 
you know, sweating my balls off and freaking just feeling like crap. Well, not feeling like crap, but feeling great, but exhausted after a workout. Is there something else I can use as a, uh, a, a determining factor as to whether or not I, uh, you know, trained well that day? Almost like what I value out of a workout. Yeah, this is almost going into our next topic of minimalism here. And it's actually almost a good little leeway, but a lot of people need way less than they think they do. A lot of people feel like they need really, really hard workouts, high amount of volume, everything like that. Really, we don't need that much to actually adapt. And that's called your minimum effective dose, which means the minimum amount of training you do to actually adapt from that. Now, coming back into it, like you said before, this has been a great reset. So really, our body is ready to adapt right now. Everything is good. Everything's ready. Our body is ready to adapt. If you start it at what used to be your 100% effort, that is too much for our bodies to handle right now. So a big thing here is actually learning that less can be more in the long run. And really, that's just a mental battle. Okay, That is just mm. a mental battle with one another, with you and your brain. Your brain is always going to want to do more. Your brain is always going to want to try work harder and train more because in our brain's eyes, that means that we, the, the harder you work, apparently the faster you get your goals, which yes is the case, but there's only so much that you should work before that becomes counterproductive. So actually having that conversation with your brain of knowing that this is the process you need to go through to be able to improve is going to be very important. Right, right. And so let's probably lead into the next uh, topic, which is minimalism then. Yeah. And we'll, we'll just carry on with what we just talked about now, which is, what was that? Minimal? Minimal effective dose. Minimal effective dose. Now, what are the factors of that? Because I am aware of that a big one is training age. Yeah. So some factors in there is obviously your volume, your intensity, and the actual time spent training. Now, your minimal effective dose is obviously different person by person. For example, for Andy to adapt in a muscle arm, he might need less reps than what I do, okay? Across both of our training ages, I've done way more muscle-ups, okay? I'm a lot more conditioned to them. I'm a lot more used to them. So I need more of them to actually adapt in the muscle-up. Now, Andy hasn't done as many. He can do less of them, and he can adapt at a faster rate than what I do. Right. So should I, at this point, for instance, be doing, obviously, less than what you need to, you'd have to do more than what you need to to progress, at what point in time would you have to do less? Once you, so there's a bit of a curve here, okay? Now it's a bit hard because I'm pointing my fingers around right now, but imagine I'm drawing something. There's a bit of a curve here, okay? The, you can increase volume, you can increase intensity, and that increases adaptations, okay? So adaptations go up. Now, depending on the person, that goes up so high, and then as soon as you hit a point, your body virtually stops at a, a adapting. You can keep adding volume and intensity, but that does not necessarily mean more adaptations, okay? You might actually sit there with a bit of a plateau, and you might actually just sit there linearly and just stay on that same line for a little while. Now, if you increase volume or intensity even more to the point where now you're past your minimal effective dose and past now your maximum recoverable volume, that then will start dropping. So you'll actually lose strength and, and your skill set. Yeah, by adding too much. So just to sum that up, just so I understand, basically there's a lot of wasted reps. For instance, if my training age is quite long, 
I'm quite old in it. And let's say I was doing from the hypertrophy standpoint of uh, a back day, I may be wasting 60% of that, that day working on my back if it's already quite developed and it's actually plateauing. Yeah. So treat your, let's say, we'll take, yeah, take your back into it. Let's say we'll take your traps into uh, example here. Now, this is a really hard one to measure without something like an NIRS device, which is also known as a uh, Moxie monitor. Moxie monitor is like a brand for it. But if you know how to use one of those, you can actually measure what a muscle needs, how many contractions a muscle needs to be able to adapt. Okay. Now, take your traps, for example. You might only need three sets to actually promote growth in your traps. Okay. Mm -hmm. Three sets might be the minimum. Four sets might be perfect where you're actually promoting the most amount of growth. Okay. Now, five sets might actually push that over a little bit. And five sets, all of a sudden, you ain't getting shit out of. So you just wasted a set which is, in theory, that is also time, okay? That is also wasting your body's ability to be able to recover. If you push that down onto six sets, okay, that might actually push the balance too far. Your body can't recover from that, which then turns into a shoulder injury. Right. Or okay. a neck injury or something like that. All right, so question. So if I reduce, at that point in time where I am at, uh, where I'm doing too many reps and I actually reduce my number of reps, my volume may, I'm sorry, the, um, the weight may stay the same, but my volume goes down. Yes. So how does that mean that I can break out of a plateau from there? Okay. So with that one, if you've been training one way with, let's say, you know, 20 bicep sets a week, okay, that you've been doing and you've been doing that for the past six months and you haven't seen a single bit of growth there, you're not all of a sudden going to be able to drop that down to 10 or 15 sets and suddenly see improvement. Okay? Yeah. because your body is currently used to 20, yeah. even if your body is adapting there. You need to bring that back. You need to give yourself a bit of a deload, a bit of a refresher, maybe even change the stimulus slightly. It might be bring the sets back, increase the load. It might be attack the biceps with a different movement. Okay, right. There can be other factors that you can bury there to promote that growth again. It might just be even give yourself two weeks off from doing any bicep work, then go back into it, but start from start from scratch. So really just checking up your body's uh, adaptation to that format of working out. Yeah. Resetting that and then coming in with a whole different perspective. I don't want to you know, bastardize what you said. You know, I guess back in the day where uh, there was less knowledge on this, that would be a kind of like muscle con uh, confusion in a way. <laughs> yes. Yeah, good old muscle confusion. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, that's an interesting way of looking at it. Um, so in that... I'm saying that then, uh, and, and keeping it minimalistic, how should someone approach it now in the context of coming back in the gym? Should that even be considered or? Yeah, your uh, how you should be approaching training coming back into it should be a learning, in a learning manner, which doesn't mean trying to learn every single skill on day one, but it should be approaching every movement that you do in a learning manner, in a minimalist manner, meaning don't, for example, your muscle up. You're not trying to have perfect muscle ups day one. You're just trying to get slightly better than where you were. Right. Okay. Day one, you test it. You do a muscle up. Okay, sweet. You got a minor little bit of a chicken wing. Day two, you're now trying just to use one cue, one thing to help you get a little bit better. Rather mm -hmm. than throwing a million different cues at you, just have that one thing to get that a little bit better. Right. I'm guessing that's going to be a huge challenge, actually. I mean, because there's so many skills that you've probably been trying to um, perfect over the years. And now you're trying to regain all those skills back at the same time. Now, of course, that is probably not the case right now. You shouldn't do that. You should probably 
minimize uh, the way you actually set your goals and how you want to progress and develop those skills back up. Is there a certain way of um, organizing that or systemizing that so that you can get back into the swing of things? For instance, I start with getting my muscle up back next week. I might want to try chaining, you know, a hundred double unders. Is there a, a way I should be uh, organizing all this? Yes. If you look at all the movements that you want to get back, try to regain back the most simple ones first or the ones that you believe are the easiest. Okay. Okay. So if we look at, you know, you haven't squatted, deadlifted, bench, benched for ages, okay, and you know you've done eight years of training in those, start with those. Okay. okay? Start with a strict pull-up. Don't go straight back into the bar muscle-up. Start with doing some strict pull-ups, kipping pull-ups, chest to bars, and progress from there. Literally like you're relearning as a beginner. You're going to learn at a faster rate, but think start with the minimal versions of the movement and then build to the maximal, the higher effort stuff. Right. And one week, I wouldn't cram like all of those things in one week. No. You want to be thinking about this as like a progression, okay? So before I'm going to do any cleans or snatches, let's say take cleans, for example, week one, I might just be doing some deadlifting and some front squatting the base components of that movement, mm. like your muscle-up. I might just do some strict pull-ups and then maybe some beat swings or maybe some kipping pull-ups by the end of the week. Okay, sweet. Week two, let's now build that into a kipping pull-up and then maybe some kipping chest to bars or add some toes to bar in there or a drill to help with bar muscle-ups. And then obviously if you're progressing well and if your body's learning well, then increase from there. But doing the bare minimum every single time is going to progress you the fastest in this way and give you a lower chance of injury. So like on Monday, for instance, I could do just to get my cleans back up, deadlifts and and some, uh, I don't know what else would be a good movement. It wasn't say deadlifts. Front squatting. Front squatting. Deadlifts and front squatting for my cleans. Tuesday, I might just do some beat swings, some pull-ups and strict pull-ups. Yep. Wednesday, maybe rest day. Uh, Thursday could be working on just getting at back some timing with my double-unders. We're doing singles maybe even, just getting yep. back into the swing of things with that but you can actually cram those movements into a week just to minimize the version of them. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much just gradually adding pieces to do with this, not rushing it all at once, and then just practicing. Cool, cool. Uh, let's, let's look at minimalism in a different perspective now because we talked about the training aspect of minimalism, but I'm sure during this whole um, isolation, there's been an element of that in our lives. So you, I want to ask you a question. What do you feel has been minimalized, if that's a word, minimized, sorry, in your life now versus what it was like prior to isolation? And has it helped you or has it been trouble, uh, has been actually bad, I guess? Minimized. Okay, so social interaction has been a massive minimized one for me because literally majority of my work is around social interaction. Sorry, I mean social interaction in person has been minimized for me. I still deal like um, get to communicate with a lot of people, but now the in-person side of things has obviously dropped massively. That has probably been the biggest one. Now that has been something which def I definitely do miss, but it, obviously without having that uh, social interaction in person, it's made me learn how to communicate better via either phone, whether that's message or phone call, and not actually being in person. What it's also done is freed up more time because one, there hasn't had to be any travel or as much travel either. So I've freed up more time to be able to do other things. 
work has definitely not been minimized in this time. No. I think you can uh, say that as well. Definitely not. <laughs> There's still been a significant amount of work actually done. There's just certain aspects of work that have definitely been minimized. Have you felt like you can now also partition your life a lot more structurally and that kind of relieves a bit of uh, complexity when it comes to a week of work or a week of activity where things are a lot more random. Now they're more pre uh, predictable because here's one element, you can't travel anywhere, you're at home. So where you're going to be is already determined. You're going to be at home. Is that Has that helped you? Even your thought process is a lot clearer now because that's been removed? Yes, definitely. There's been, because of that forced minimization, as in, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people got put in that as well because now I'm limited of, I know that people aren't going to ask me on a weekend, hey, do you want to come out for food? Yeah, or, yeah. you know, I don't need to think about too much about where or when I'm traveling throughout a week. It's, I know exactly where I am and pretty much every single day. Now, do you like that? <laughs> yes, if you know me, I am not a social butterfly when it comes to outside being outside of the gym. I like my own time and my own space. So being, I suppose, lack of better wording, locked up at home has been amazing. I do miss actually socializing within the gym, but thank you for no one asking me to hang out outside of that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess the hang, uh, being able to socialize at the gym aligns more of your purpose and like, you know, what you enjoy you know, from a, a deeper place. Uh, I think I agree with you completely when you say that having those opportunities taken out of my life in terms of like going out for food on the weekend or even just like knowing that I can travel to multiple places to do things, having those options removed allows me to just make better decisions because the decisions are limited. So, yeah. Yeah, the force minimization here is huge. What, how do you describe being a minimalist or even minimalism in general? How do you describe it? I touched on it a bit just there, but really it's just, it's removing, it's making one decision really. It's allowing yourself to make one sole decision and that continuing on uh, throughout your life. And so you don't have to really think about different opportunities or options, which really uh, can just cloud your thoughts during the day. My perspective on the positive, positive side of minimalism, the reason why you would practice it is so that you can make or dedicate more thought process to the things that actually matter during your life. So you're not dabbling on whether or not you're having you know, tacos or, or enchiladas on one night or whether or not you know, go and you know, start X diet or Y diet, you're just eating the exact same things because you've already decided that in that one moment. And that uh, it doesn't have to mean you have uh, you can't eat the food you love or you can't wear the clothes you love. Uh, it just means you just have that one piece of clothing or that one item that you truly love and that's all you need because you decided on that point. And so it's also just, you can have variety, it's just you're planning for it. Yeah. Yeah, I pretty much completely agree there. I approach minimalism in life very similar to what I do in training is in minimum effective dose. So I look at it and go, this is my goals for, let's say, that day, that week, that year, whatever it is. What is the minimum, what is the minimal amount that I need to do to actually get there? And I don't mean that in necessarily a work aspect, but I mean, I can do 10 things. Five of those things don't actually lead me towards my goal. Okay. What is those five things that will get me there the fastest or the most efficient, you know, or even that one thing looking at every single day, go, 
what do I do now that is going to get me closer to the goal more directly rather right. than doing 10 different things? Yeah, that's a good way of looking at it. So minimalism in essence is just efficiency from point A to point B. Yeah, in one, well, one aspect, yeah. Yeah. I guess even from, you know, I guess is in a popular culture kind of perspective here, you may have seen a documentary on, uh, on Netflix, but it doesn't mean you have to remove everything out of your life. It's, uh, there's no benefit to just doing that for the sake of doing it. Mm. There's a purpose behind it, and that purpose is knowing that you want to dedicate more of your life to the things that matter. And you know what? Maybe that shirt that you bought two years ago does matter to you. So you keep that around. You wear that once in a while versus having a closet full of random clothes that, let's be honest, you don't wear all of them at all. So even the complexity of the items on your um, in your life can be minimized too in terms of the brands that you spend on. Maybe having a, a single water bottle instead of buying X brands of uh, bottled water, you know, maybe that is um, a way of minimizing for you. But it's just really allowing yourself to declutter your life and reduce complexity so you can start dedicating more of your thought process to the things that matter. That might be training, nutrition, or your work um, in front of you. So that's what our take is on minimalism. And I hope you guys can uh, look at that, especially from a perspective coming from isolation into um, uh, back into reality because you now had, I'm sure, some time to see what that felt like now, um, feels like now, which is you're going out uh, a lot less. So have you been asking yourself, have you been spending your time wisely and minimizing based on that? So yeah, I hope that helps. Uh, should we move into our next little discussion? I reckon we should, especially while we're still talking about minimalism because our next piece really, so last few weeks we've always been doing our five things. Okay? Yeah, yeah. So we've been describing five things. Now, Sorry, five things that, you know, our, our review on five things, really, that's what yeah. it's been, hasn't it? doesn't really have to be five things we, we feel. No. Yeah, it could be anything, really, that we would recommend to you guys that we feel value in, um, has value to you guys and us as well. Yeah. So this week, we're actually talking, we're taking one thing each, okay? And it is around minimalism. So with this one, mine is purely training-based, okay? And... This is something that I know works well for me, but also I want to see if you guys can actually apply this to yourselves as well and try and be a little bit more minimalist within training. And I'll talk about that in a second, but see how it actually affects you. So that's a little like, I want to say uh, a little bit of a challenge for you guys. Can you guys utilize this in any way? And does it help you? If it doesn't, you don't have to do it. If it does, sweet. Heard a lot of people talking about their efficiency within their training recently, as in something that should take them one hour has actually taken them three. Now, something that I know, I know that's me also. I get distracted mid-training session. I end up having to go do something. I end up having to warm up, cool down a million times. Why one thing that helps me when training to be efficient and to be, and it also means I'm being more minimalist is removing my phone from that training session, mm. writing down what I'm doing on either a whiteboard or a piece of paper and then removing the phone from it, okay? Because it is so easy to get distracted. Either someone calls you, someone messages you, Facebook gives you notifications, something along those lines. Remove that, get that out. So as soon as you're training, you are just training. Now, you could apply that to work as well. 
Remove your phone if you're working, only have the laptop there. Don't have Facebook open, just have the laptop there, have nothing else, and you'll more than likely work more efficient. That's a, that's a good uh, piece of advice. Uh, I would also agree with that, especially from um, a commercial gym standpoint too. A lot of times you probably wouldn't have your phone with you for music, but even if you can download apps nowadays where you can disable all the stimuli that would uh, distract you naturally for like an hour. You can set that time for yourself. So let's say you went to a gym and uh, you knew you are gonna be training for about an hour, just you know, having that, um, that app active during that time to remove you know, notifications from Facebook or Instagram, whatever, whatever it is, that could be a, a good solution as well. Mm, yeah, definitely. Now, what is your one tip or one little challenge for everyone for this week? Yeah, okay, well, I actually had a few thoughts just now that I think are a little more beneficial. I did touch on nutrition was gonna be the one I was gonna talk about, which is minimizing your your intake in terms of the variety. You can, again, as I said before, you can have variety, but plan for it. You don't need to have you know tacos on Monday, sushi on Wednesday, and, and all these different types of foods. You probably know deep down that you only need or you only do eat a certain series of foods. So decide on planning out based on that the foods you're going to eat during the week, but keeping it pretty basic uh, and I guess satisfying uh, based on your likes and, and, and your training and your general nutrition anyway. So just really reduce down on that complexity. But the one other challenge, and this is something that I'm struggling with myself, but the reason why um, I want to uh, approach this with you guys is um, I think it's very important in terms of coming from some, a background of where volume is very important. And I mean, when I mean volume, I mean from personal activity, like goal setting. And I know I mentioned this in last week's podcast, but I love to just accrue goals. And I feel like the more goals I have, the better. But in true honesty, it's, that's actually you know, very counterproductive in a huge way. You know, I can have a million goals. And if none of them gets uh, achieved, then what does it even matter? So having the one goal and minimizing on your goals, or even as I said last week, linking your goals so they're in a sequence, at least as long as, long as you're attacking them one at a time, uh, or if you really wanna be really tight on it two at a time, but don't no more than that, that you can focus on, then let's, that's, that's the, uh, the challenge I have for you guys. Set up your goals in more of a linear fashion than stacking them together in one big block that you're not gonna achieve. And, uh, and, and approaching life from that standpoint. So that's, I think, I think is a big factor in minimalism. We don't attack enough, but uh, yeah, that's my uh, challenge for you. I love that. I actually really like that. If any of you guys have read the book, Perfect Day Formula, they pre pretty much talk specifically around that with goals, but he has one goal for relationships, one goal for uh, wealth, I think he said, so pretty much financial one goal for training or personal, and then one goal for business. Yeah, yeah. So, right. I mean, minimizing that to those four goals, you, yours might even be simple, just like a, you know, personal and then a business or even a personal and then a relationship goal. You yeah. don't need four. But you don't need to be in your relationship side of things. Um, let's say, uh, like, you know, want to achieve your muscle up and then you also want to achieve a heavier snatch and then also getting your 5K down to a sub 18, I don't know. You can do it one at a time and that's okay because that's it's more than okay. It's the appropriate way to attack it. Mm. Yeah, it's good. Now, we're on the topic of goals. Last week, we set some big goals. 
We want you guys to keep us accountable on these ones. Remember, quick little recap. My goal is the 500-pound deadlift, so 227 kilos and 27, uh, sorry, 27, 50 strict handstand push-ups going up from 47, not from 27. Now, uh, as of the Monday just passed, okay, that is when we started this one. So mm. we have eight weeks to complete that for me. Andy's got eight weeks. His first four weeks was a sub 16-minute 4K, okay, and also to gain width in his shoulders throughout that this time. width is whatever. I just want to get bigger shoulders. There is no number associated get huge. with that. That's it. Yeah, so get bigger shoulders and get the sub 16-minute 4K. Now, as soon as he hit that, he's got a four-week goal of those two. As soon as he's hit that in four weeks, we're going to measure his body fat, okay? His goal for the next four weeks, bringing it to eight weeks total, is decrease the body fat. The body, the amount that he decreases will be determined by what he's at at that four week, and we'll uh, announce that on the podcast. But also, at the same time, keep that sub-16-minute 4K. Yeah, and that's the only goal. I don't care about uh, getting a higher snatch, even though I want uh, uh, you know, the um, three-digit snatch. Um, I've written it down. And I'm not looking at it until I finish this goal. Yeah. So pretty much majority of his goal is just running. Yeah. So this was technically the first week that we've worked towards this. Obviously, I was deadlifting beforehand. He was running beforehand. So we were doing a little bit beforehand. But now we're truly sp uh, spending some time trying to target these ones. So first week, we don't really have a lot to say on this. I mean, for me, my deadlifting's going all right. My pulling off the floor seems to be feeling amazing at the moment. I mean, I hit... 200 for four, which was technically a PB for me mm. by one rep. Again, 200 felt all right. I haven't actually gone any heavier since. Again, besides doing a ton of glute, hamstring, and lower back accessory work, it's feeling good. That's yeah. all I've got to really say. You're, you're just, just in general, your hinging and, and pull movements have really, really improved a lot. Yeah, um, it, it's sort of been forced to with this isolation because I, I ain't got no squat rack. Yeah, good point. But uh, yeah, that's a good point. You're going back, you're going to do some more squats. Do you think your squat will drop down a little bit or do you think you'll just maintain it? I reckon I will be hitting similar numbers in this squat, meaning I would, I'm would. i hoping for the exact same, if anything, maybe slightly more. Um, and that's pure, purely due to, I haven't been squatting as often, but my system as a whole is stronger. So I feel like even if I walked back in with like a nice equal PB, that's a win. Mm, the perfect world is is having isolation gains. I think that's kind of <laughs> exciting to see how we go from there. But yeah, uh, same deal with me. My running, we've only started this week, so I've only done really one session of um, of scheduled training to progress in that goal. But we'll probably give you a much more detailed um, breakdown of what our training is to get to that point and our progression for that week. So I think with that said, that's... That basically sums up everything that we wanted to discuss today. Is there anything else we can discuss with these guys? Now nah, we'll save something for next week. We've got to have something interesting to talk about next week. I agree. All right, guys. Always stay safe, and I'll catch you in the next episode. See you later, guys.